I would not want ever for a young girl to come up to me and say that that's happened to her first and foremost and I definitely would not want for her to come and tell me that that happened and I just say to her that's the way that things are it is important to change the way that we believe that things are I'm very high achieving like I need to these are my goals these are my goals like I go from one goal to the next goal however that was partly a trauma response because I needed that kind of hit in my brain of like okay you've done another thing that doesn't that means that you're you know you're not trash and you're not worthless you've done another thing so I never sat in a moment of each achievement I was just like on to the next one and so one of the most challenging things that I've had to do was work out how to rest and not to link my worth to the amount of work that I do you forget where your power that your power has resided with you all along like on this journey of life like we've been given all of the tools that we need we just need to know where they are like i did a tedx talk where i talk about the backpack like and having all the tools that you need to to, to succeed and thrive in this life but just not knowing that you were carrying them all along and all it takes is maybe for somebody to come along and be like quick one if you'd like to support us on our journey to a thousand please do consider subscribing or following this podcast wherever it is you're listening to this Thank you. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to 1000 Voices, the podcast on a mission to interview 1000 inspirational Black Britons. And today's guest is definitely a very inspirational Black Briton, Kalechi Okafor. Kalechi is someone who a lot of you may already know. She is a social commentator, an actress, a director, an entrepreneur, a podcaster, a writer, amongst all sorts of other things that she works on. But in this interview in particular, I feel like we get to see a side of her that a lot of us may not already know about. She opens up and talks about how she's on a journey to reclaim her own power and the steps that she's taken now to help other people reclaim their power in turn. So without further ado, this is 1000 Voices and here we have Kalechi Okafor. Thank you very much, Kalechi, for coming to 1000 Voices today. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's lovely to have you. Um, yeah, really appreciate your time today. And I'm sure that we're going to have a very, very good and amazing conversation. Definitely. So what I like to do with um, guests when we start off is just to take it back, you know, set a little bit of a foundation and talk about your upbringing with you. I know you were born in Nigeria and you came here when you were five years old. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's correct. So yeah, born in Lagos, Nigeria to a Yoruba mum and an Igbo dad and um yeah moved over to england when i was five years old and moved straight into london peckham se 15. cool and what was your upbringing like um it was interesting i think that um i spent a lot of the time feeling a bit like an outsider because living in lagos um very much i don't have lots and lots of memories from there but you know the memories that i did have um or i do have were rather like joyful and it was just a whole different vibe and so to get to england and for everything to feel so kind of um i don't know like um cold uh yeah. you know cold <laughs> you know literally and also in the abstract sense like it was just cold it was just different but then i think one of the saving graces was actually like moving to Peckham because Peckham was almost seen like as a little Lagos. So it, even though I felt so far away from home, even though I was living with my mum, the idea that you could go down Rye Lane and you could still hear people speaking Yoruba was, was comforting to me. And so I think that that really helped. And then I started school and had this Nigerian accent and obviously, you know, like little children, they can be so mean sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and they would make fun of my accent or the way that I said things. And I remember my stepdad then saying to me, oh, you know, you shouldn't be speaking Yoruba everywhere you go. You have to start speaking English so you can blend in more. And I think that that was it. That kind of shift just happened. And I was like, okay, well, if people want me to speak English and they want me to speak it with this sort of accent, I think I just put my efforts into that. And I guess it's paid off because of my writing skills, my sense of um, articulation. All of those things are helping me in my career now. But they came about, I guess, simply because of all of those times of feeling outside of everything. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was challenging. And I felt like a lot of it required me to kind of find my way. I was um, I'm the only child for my mum and my between my mum and my dad. But then moving in with my mum, I now had a stepdad and then um, a younger brother came soon after that. And then another younger brother came soon after that. So I had to pretty much forge the way for them in terms of like learning how the school system works, learning how the area works and all of that stuff. And then it kind of followed after me. So, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of firsts. And them times there, what were your early career ambitions? Oh, I thought that I was going to be an actress. I still think that, you know, that's what I do. Like performing has always been like the thing that drives me. Absolutely always been the thing that drives me. Um, I remember I would be dancing on the compound or in the compound in um, Nigeria where we lived. And um, I'd be dancing there in Fadi. I'd be dancing there. And um, I came over here. Uh, to um, England and already I was like in the school plays I was a Christmas tree one year I remember and then uh, you know I went to secondary school and uh, I, I was in all of like the musical theatre productions from then I went on to Brit school and I um, studied musical theatre and English literature there as well went to university studied theatre studies um, a combined degree theatre studies with law um, so you know, everywhere there's always been that sort of like performing dramaturgy. That's what I understand. And that's what I know best. And then if you look at the theatre of life as well, especially when we see what's happening in terms of politics um, in this country at the moment, that is a spectacle, that is theatre. And so I think it does help to have an understanding of artifice, to have an understanding of dramaturgy, to understand what is being played out in front of you. Um, so I think that that's greatly helped my observational skills as well. So where you'd get some parents who are like, oh, no, 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 no. My daughter can't come and become, you know, <laughs> an actress, like go and study law, go and study medicine, which is what my mum very much was like. Um, they now see that all of those skills that I was so insistent upon um, honing, those are the skills that are helping me now, even though I'm still doing those things in an abstract way that maybe they would have wanted for me. Very interesting. And you made an interesting point there. When you talk about, we say politics is like theatre. What do you what mm -hmm. do you mean by that? As in like, as in it's not real? I mean, what do you mean by that? Yeah, a lot of it isn't. You know, we know that Shakespeare said like all the world's a stage and all the men are merely players. And I think that that's what we are. We come here to perform. Even in Yoruba um, spirituality, we talk about like the earth being a marketplace that you arrive and you sell your wares you do what you need to do you make your transactions and you make them as well as possible in terms of like being fair and getting the most out of the things that you have in terms of your character your skills and all of that but you have to remember that it's a marketplace it's not your home you just want to do what you need to do and keep your eyes on the prize basically um and i think that again that lends itself when we then look at things like politics 
it's people, they give us a, a, a their version of reality. For instance, they could tell us like, oh, as a country, we don't have money. Then we can lose billions on test and trace and all of this stuff and then have nothing to show for it. Why? Because in and of itself, money, currency, in and of itself is also a construct. So we are giving our lives over to constructs, to um, smoke and mirrors, um, while failing to understand that the real tangible things are our connectedness with each other. They're on a stage, like literally when you look at parliament, they stand up, they're all in a kind of, and the, the setup of the House of Commons lends itself to that of a theatre. And then they're jeering and shouting, almost like a pantomime. And therefore mm -hmm. you get pantomime characters. Um, and everyone then chooses which character they want to support to go along with the, with the performance, basically. Um, and, you know, all of these things, it's like we're forgetting that, but we are real life. Like, we have to take these things into account because while you might enjoy the spectacle, that spectacle still has an impact on your day-to-day -day life. And we've seen that over the past two years with, um, you know, lockdown and the pandemic and things like that, that if you start voting for a clown or you support clowns, what you are going to get is a circus. And that's what we've seen around us. I hear you. And it's true. When you talk about the House of Parliament and all the jeering and everything like that. So whenever, you know, I watch it and I talk to my missus about it as well. And then you see they'll mm. someone will put forward some it's a serious they're talking about a serious thing. These are our lives they're talking yes. about. They'll yes. put something forward. Yes. And then, then everyone will be like laughing, shouting, <laughs> and then the speaker will come up like, Oh, I don't need no help from you, blah, blah, blah. keep it down. And it happens over and over again. And they're laughing, it's like a joke, you know, it's like a big play, like you're saying. And mm -hmm. In, yeah. in of all of that, yeah. So them people are living however they're living. They're not affected by the things that affect the most, the majority of average working class person. And when they're jeering mm -hmm. and laughing and that, this is stuff that is really affecting the everyday person. When they're now talking about yeah. when the energy bill rises right now and everybody jeering and laughing, the everyday person is really, really, really being affected by something like that. Yes. Um, and yeah, I hate that stuff. Like I'm, I'm not, I don't, it's sort of like a contempt in a way for the everyday person, yeah. you know? No, I was going to say that's, that's, but that also, that also feeds itself into what we get from the monarchy. I think that it would be very, very different. Like we would, I, I think that we would interact with the politicians a lot more differently if we weren't beholden to the monarchy. If you've already got this idea that these people are just born into this position of lots of money, like lots of wealth and authority, and you answer to them, and at the same time, you have to admire them when all of it is just pomp and regalia, like they put on all of these very outlandish, big outfits, and you are subservient to them, you're going to keep being subservient. There's going to be the next person that you're subservient to, which in this case, I guess, would be the prime minister, and the next person after that, and the next person after that, and the next person after that. Yet, you're told that it's a democracy. But if it's a democracy, then ideally, the monarchy needs to go because we did not vote them in and um it's people um, shifting their narrative or shifting their mindset to understand that the power still resides with them i think the problem that we have collectively as a country is that we've forgotten that the power is with us you know it's it's an individual um and a collective power and we are told that we're not smart enough to be in politics that's why we vote these people in who ideally are smarter than us but between you and me like boris is not smarter than you or me in this con like he's not you know but he's where he is because of um class race all of that puts him 
where he is, where we know that there are far more, um, you know, competent, qualified people with more empathy um, that don't treat us with contempt that could very much be in that position. But why aren't they? Because we've got these structures in place that only so few people can really penetrate. And those who do, we have to be a bit weary of them because it's like, what did you lose along the way to get to where you are? Because another thing is representation politics. We're so quick sometimes to be like, oh, the first black, da 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 da. First black, da da da. Okay, the first black, what? The first pl um, black demon that's still going to be dealing with you the same way that everybody else was dealing with you. But I don't, it's like, oh, I don't mind being oppressed as long as the person looks like me. Whereas we've got to be like, regardless of who the person looks like, I do not want to be oppressed. I want to be able to express my power daily and for that to be honored as I honor the power that other people bring forth in their life um so yeah it, it is all just it, it is just all fanfare so speaking on power so let's talk about power for a bit you know you're a prominent person I suppose and you have like a large following and everything and you come across as someone you can correct me if I'm wrong but you come across as someone that really I guess you know your power or you know who you are you know yourself if you get what I'm trying to say where mm. I'm going with that drift is that mm. when you talk about okay we find our power as individuals and before we find our power as a collective and then you know move forward mm -hmm. as people with yourself have you always had that strong sense of self is that a fair reflection no I yeah no I, I don't think I I don't think I did um, I think I was born with it, definitely. But then you forget. Alice Walker says, you know, like one of the greatest services that we sort of do our, um, for ourselves is that believing that we have no power, you know. And um, throughout my... So I, when I came to England, my mum was working and, you know, doing everything she could do. And so I'd stay with a childminder. And during that time, um, the family member of the childminder subjected me to sexual abuse. And this was around the age of like seven, eight. And I didn't speak about it at the time because you don't have the language for that sort of thing. You don't know if that you're going to be the person in trouble. Nobody ever really explains it to you. So you just walk around with a lot of shame and feeling tainted, dirty, all of that stuff. And then you feel like your power has been taken away. Or I felt like my power had been taken away. And I remember looking at school reports that would be like, oh, Colette, she's so intelligent, so creative, but she's so moody. And again, when we think about the narrative of the angry black person, specifically the angry black woman, why did these teachers not take the time to be like, why moody? Why is the word moody that we've chosen? Maybe that was the case. Maybe I was just walking around being a cow. We don't, but it's the fact that we didn't have any other alternative language for that but I wonder if I was a younger white girl, would it have been the same language that was used? So there wasn't much support in that sense. And I um, finally mentioned it to my mum around the age of 16. And that was really sad when I actually did, because all she said was, um, you know, she was very, very sad, very um, upset about it. And she was like, oh, you know, but if we all start talking about the things that we've gone through as young girls, where would we be? You know, we just have to pick ourselves up and move on. And what I heard in that is that this is a generational thing when it comes to black girls and women, um, that these things happen and almost is treated as a rite of passage because there is kind of this mis uh, misguided loyalty that, oh, we don't say anything and we just keep pushing. And again, giving our power away, but believing that the power is just in continuing. And I thought I would not want ever for a young girl to come up to me and say that that's happened to her first and foremost. And I definitely would not want for her to come and tell me that that happened. And I just say to her, that's the way that things are. It is important to change the way that we believe that things are. 
Um, and so even from the age of 16, I feel like something started shifting within me. Like I don't, that, that wasn't helpful to me. It was helpful to me because I got an idea that this is a generational thing, but it wasn't helpful to me because, you know, you kind of think that when you say something like that, suddenly everyone will rush in and protect you and fix everything that was wrong. But that wasn't the case. I was still tasked with the, in my view, magnanimous, um, you know, duty of saving myself. And I think that's one of the main things that we need to understand as people, like nobody's coming to save you. You have to save yourself. And in saving yourself, you find a humility that allows you to see the process and the journey that other people are on of saving them their own selves. Right. Um, and so there was a lot of like trying to figure it out, trying to figure it out. It was only around the age of maybe 22, 21 that I started thinking, oh gosh, it feels so horrible to exist inside me. So much angst, so much anxiety, depression, all of that stuff. I am going to seek therapy. And so when I mentioned it to my mum, I remember her being like, oh, no, 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 we don't do those. Ah. But, you know, at the same time, she's a mental health nurse. But I guess the fear came from understanding how black people are treated within the mental health system, the mental health care system, where she was just like, oh, they don't take to us too kindly and that's one of the reasons why she's there because she wanted that change right but I was like no I'm gonna do it anyway and my first therapist I thought she was trash and you'd think that at that point I would give up but something was still like no no this is where you need to be and the thing is some people stop at that point they go mm. they take they do the big you know big old task of getting themselves to therapy and they get there and they were like this is not what I expected not realizing that Maybe that just wasn't the right person for you, but you shouldn't just give up because that person wasn't the right person for you. And there are different types of therapies as well, all of that stuff. And I was just like, no, I'm going to persevere. So after that, I had a black therapist um, who was not super much older than I was. And that was transformative because she started giving me the language that I didn't know that I needed for the kind of experiences that I've had. Um, my sessions finished with her because that was through the NHS. And then I went back again and had another black therapist, a black woman therapist. And again, learning things through her, but learning that her mode of therapy was different. Like she wasn't so much like, she wasn't poised. And it sounds random. Like she wasn't poised. She wasn't trying to be all like, I'm the therapist and you're the um, patient or the client. No, she was very, if I was telling her something, she would be like, what? And then what happened? Hmm. Oh, wow, girl. You know, that was that animated nature of hers showed me that again, you can have therapists that have different types of personalities. The important thing is that they're professional and they're able to hold space for you and everybody holds space in different ways for what you need. Um, and after, you know, that was running in line with my career, sort of my career trajectory growing. By this point, I'd opened my first studio, was moving on to closing that one to open a bigger um, space in Peckham. So my life was changing. And so these therapists were following me through my life changing. Um, and as I discovered more about myself, the things that I felt was hard to accept, the things that I felt was easy to accept, I started honing my power even more. But the thing that you have to kind of get about power is that you can you have to deal with shame. You have to deal with the times that you didn't know what your power looked like. So you may have acted out in different ways. You might have said things that you wouldn't necessarily stand by now. You just you have to understand that there is an evolution of self. Now, when we're looking at the internet, versions of you will continue to live there even after you may have feel um you may feel like you've outgrown those versions. And again, power is about owning that and being like, yeah, I said that, but here we are. 
here we are, you know, and this is what I've learned since, and this is what I'm sharing since, but again, you have to be okay with people being like, mm, no, I'm going to hold on to that version of you, because that makes me feel more secure within myself, or, or giving me more security in my dislike of you, you have to let people dislike you, and, and have that, you have to be okay with that, because it's never really about you, like, time moves, you know, time it's not, you know, time isn't linear. And if they want to live with a version of you that's no longer a part of who you presently are, you have to let them have that. And you've got to keep moving on within reason. So yeah, I feel like my power grew exponentially when I started to look at all of the places that hurt and I allowed myself to be vulnerable. And I think that that's one of my superpowers when it comes to existing in the public space as a black British woman, black British, well, I'd say Nigerian woman primarily in this British space that, um, they're so used to tearing black women down. They're so used to black women not fighting back. You know, we're not talking about, you know, people like Olive Morris and um, Alethea Jones who came before us. I'm talking about like Diane Abbott. Diane Abbott can have a cheeky mojito or fruit from a can on mm. the tube. And everyone's like, you must come and apologize immediately. How dare you? <laughs> but, you know, Boris can do whatever he's been doing. And it's like, oh no, but can we understand how hard it is to, to lead a country and blah, 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 blah. So what we're seeing is that black women tend to not speak out publicly in Britain. They firm it, they firm it. They get disrespected, they firm it. However, my access to my vulnerability and that being my superpower means that there's nothing that you have on me now that can shame me. And that is a scary thing for somebody who's trying to keep you under manners. There's nothing you have. You know, I talked about, even when I had my miscarriage in 2018, I spoke about that publicly. I've spoken about so many things publicly that what would anyone have as ammunition? And that, in my view, makes you indestructible, right? And so it means that I can speak about certain things and um, say the things that so many other Black women want to say, but they can't say because of the spaces that they exist within. I'm not formally employed by anybody. I've been um, self-employed since about like 2013, um, fully self-employed since about 2016. So there's no one, there's nobody that's my boss. And these things came about from me first addressing the, the point where I felt like my power was taken away from me, the, the abuse as a child working through the shame of that, understanding that shame can creep up on you at any time. Because again, time isn't linear. It can creep up on you at any time, but you've got to keep showing yourself the compassion that you felt like you weren't shown when you were younger or you weren't showing yourself and you've just got to move on from there. All right. So in terms of you finding yourself, would you say the most important facets to it along your journey were one, speaking to your mom about the abuse you received when you were 16 years old and to the therapy and also three just being vulnerable in public and is it still a journey you're on now definitely definitely those were definitely points of um of change for me they were all pivotal moments for me um in growing and yeah like I said like time isn't linear we're always on that journey I'm discovering something new about myself every single day every single day there's another thing I'm like oh I like that I don't think I'd like that that's interesting Oh, I don't like that anymore. I've grown out of that person. They used to be the world to me. Now I, I've grown out of it. And nobody has to be a villain. I've just outgrown that stage. And um, being okay with that, being okay with knowing that every day will be different and every day literally is a gift. And there's something that we're meant to take away from every day, even if it's just like, oh, rest is also beautiful. Because somebody like me... Um, 
working through the abuse meant that I was very hyper functional I'm very high achieving like I need to these are my goals these are my goals like I go from one goal to the next goal however that was partly a trauma response because I needed that kind of hit in my brain of like, okay, you've done another thing that doesn't, that means that you're, you know, you're not trash and you're not worthless. You've done another thing. So I never sat in a moment of each achievement. I was just like onto the next one. And so one of the most challenging things that I've had to do was work out how to rest and not to link my worth to the amount of work that I do. Um, and that is still a journey because some days I'll be like, oh, I haven't done much today. Like, or I'll be sitting there thinking, oh, I need to justify why I need to rest when actually existing in this society is constant trauma, especially when you exist in a black body where mm -hmm. we're facing constant trauma daily. That is exhausting, you know? And so I don't need to ask for any reason to rest. I should just do it if I want to. Talking about rest. So with yourself so you're, you're working you work on a, a lot of different things like you know acting directing podcasting dance studio yeah. commentary writing other ad hoc hosting a lot of things i see, I see you watch yeah. a lot of things on your on your socials <laughs> and and you've got a family as well mm -hmm. and you talk about the importance of rest how do you mm -hmm. balance all of that and find time to rest as well yeah, I think for me currently, balance is an illusion. Like I'm a Libra son and people often talk about Libras like, oh yeah, you know, it's it, this indecisiveness or this. I think that your sun sign, this is me being my woo-woo astrological self, your it's sun cool. sign isn't necessarily who you are. It's who you're, um, it's where you will find the most peace. You know, if you can embody what the, the best part, part of your sun sign, that is where you'll find the most peace. And so my, I'm striving to find balance. I have not found it at the moment. I go from extremes. You no, know, I can be extremely busy, like just going, going, going. I'll wake up, get my son ready for nursery, go and drop him off. Next thing, you know, I'm doing interviews or I've got a writing deadline or I've got to go gym. Cause again, I take my, my personal training seriously as well. Like me training myself physically. So I've got to go and do that. And, um, you know, like, if the project, if I've been booked for a project, I've got to be there as well. So there can be times when I'm just going, 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 and then I've got to rest. And then that rest is going to be like a week. And then I'm back out again. I can't say that it's realistic that I'm going to rest every single day, but at least I'm trying to rest before the burnout comes. I want to get to the rest before the rest gets to me. You know, that's basically where I'm at now. But I pray that the more that I establish um, and I can delegate because that's the hardest part of having your own things is that at some point you've got to be okay with delegating because you cannot do it all. It, the more I get comfortable with delegating to people, I feel like it will provide me more space to do the things that I need to do. Case in point, um, the dance studio for the longest time, like when the first, when the studio first opened in 2016, I was teaching all of the classes while working as an admin assistant at City University. So I was doing all of these things and it was running me down. So I, was, I it got to the point where I thought, okay, I need to get one more teacher. So I have to train someone. So I tried training someone to teach with me and they moved with me to the new space. And then because I'd had so many students learning from me, from the students that I taught, I got teachers. And so that kept us going, but I was still doing all of the admin, all of like the marketing, all of the things. I was doing everything for the studio while doing all my other bits. So it got to the point um, last year where I had to go, okay, I need studio managers. I need studio managers. I need a PA. 
I had to start getting people in place to make life easier for, for me. And, and what that did was create more free time. So I wasn't trying to cram everything in. So some days I can take it a bit easier. Maybe I don't rush to the gym first thing in the morning. I can take my time, go to the gym later, come back, make dinner. You know, I just had more space because I allowed people. But giving over that sort of thing, trusting people that they will love your stuff the way that you love your stuff, it's truly challenging, but it is really one of the only ways to um, to move closer towards balance by letting other people help you. No, it's true. And when it's your, I guess it's your thing that you started up and it's sort of like your baby and you have your vision for it. You don't want nobody to come in and mess around with what with your baby, basically, what you've got, where you've started and where you want it to go. How do you delegate when you're thinking like that? And also, how do you find the right people to bring into your team? Yeah. I think the kind, I think the people find you, I, I, you know, I think the people find you and it's a lot of trial and error. Oh, it's a lot of trial and error because, you know, you think you got it right. And then the person like, and what I found is that a lot of people can talk a, a big game. They can talk a good game. Like, oh, I want to work with you and I'm going to do this, 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 this. That was my most challenging thing when it came to um, finding a PA. So many people can talk up the things like, oh, I'm going to do this for you and this for you and this for you. And then they start and they can't do anything or it becomes so overwhelming and so when I'm trying to explain to them before they take on the role I'm, I say to them like I'm a very busy person I'm not saying that from an egotistical perspective I'm telling you as a fact I am a very busy person and I'm juggling a lot of things and so if you come in you're going to find that it's not a straightforward kind of like I've got one role and you're only focusing on that thing one day you might be speaking to my acting agent the next minute you might be speaking to my literary agent and you've got to see how all of these things coincide as well as all of the things that are happening with the studio. You have to know how I work holistically and all of the things that I'm trying to do at one time. I know it in my head, which is why it's so easy for me to do. Um, but you might struggle to pick up on it and they'll be like, no, 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 I'm going to be fine. And then my calendar starts looking chaotic because in fact, they're not fine. Um, but then over time, I start to learn how to tell them or how to um, help them manage my calendar better. So my current PA, she's a dream and you wouldn't expect it because she's got two kids, like two young kids herself. But there is a way that she understands me and how I work that other people haven't really understood me. So we just kind of flow and she kind of she gets it. You know, she just gets it. Same with the studio managers. The studio managers didn't come out of nowhere. The studio managers have been taught by me. Um, as students, um, you know, as pole dance students. And while working with them, I started to see certain characters or character traits within them that I thought would be really useful for the studio. Um, they both have their day jobs that they're doing great at, but this is also something that they wanted to do as well. And so when I was looking for a studio manager, I realized that for now, there isn't one person that can do all of the things. However, there are two people that have all of the qualities separately. So if I got both of them to be studio managers, then I'd have all of the things. And so I was explaining that to them, like, you are really, really good at cultural innovation. You're good at moving us forward in terms of the culture of the studio, making sure that we are open to all genders, all body types, all, you know, that is your bag. Like, you're really, really good at that. Let's hone that. And you're also great at social media assets and presenting things in a very, very beautiful, articulate way. Can you focus on that? You 
you're great at organizing things to the point where it's scary. You organize all of these things. Like you make sure that the day-to-day running of the studio, the logistics of where things need to be, what this need, where this needs to be on a timetable, you do all of that stuff. So in terms of getting them both together, then I've got like a superpower, you know, because they're just doing everything. Um, but I'm working, I'm looking at their individual strengths and using that. Like you don't have to try and force one person to have all of the things. There is a way of splitting it and and they help each other. And you're, I'm starting to see that, you know, it's kind of intermingling. So somebody's going to be away on holiday, but this person already knows how they work. So they're working in that vein as well. So it's a, it's a careful science, but I think that um, when you feel called to be a leader, you you see what you need to see in people to get the best out of them. Cool. All right, that's great. And let's talk about something you're working on overseas. So I've um I've read that you're working on open uh, children's home in Nigeria with your mum. Yes. Yes. How's, yes. Uh, can you just speak about the work there and um yeah why that was an area you was looking to get into? Yeah, I think it kind of lends itself to the things we were talking about about young children, young girls, you know, and wanting as much as possible to have a positive impact on a young girl's life, you know, regardless of um, their upbringing. And so when my mum was saying to me, she came to me one day in April, I think I was pregnant, pregnant with my son. And she was just like, oh, I really want to do this thing. I keep seeing it in my dreams, but I would need your help with it. And I said, yeah, sure. And she was like, oh, I want to open an orphanage. I was like, oh, girl, we're not calling, we're not doing all of that stuff, but we can open a children's home, but we're not going to be like, you know, getting into the um, um, orphanage industrial com- um, complex. We're not doing all of that. And she was like, oh, no, no, that's what I meant. I said, perfect. Um, she said, oh, we're going to need a lot of funding for it. And I said, yeah, but in initial stages, let's just start. And so she'd had land for ages that she wasn't doing anything with. And so I started redirecting some of the funds that I was getting from all the work that I'm doing, studio, everything, started directing it there. So in the first instance, there's a house built um, on the back of the compound that she can be in and staff can be in. And then the front that's left of the compound is where we'll build the children's home. And so in my mind, from birth till about the age of like 16, 18, we can take in these young girls who for some reason, their parents aren't around. And I mean, literally not around, not the orphanage industrial complex where they tell you that the parents aren't around and they've taken the child from the parent, which we find that happens quite a lot. Their parents literally are not around and um, they will grow up there. You know, they'll have everything that they need in terms of resources. They'll have the best of everything. They'll be able to go to school um, and, you know, follow their desires, whatever that might be. Not everyone's been forced to go into law or this or that, whatever they whatever their creativity kind of manifests itself to be, I will primarily, like my mum's there to support, but I will make sure that they get all the resources to be able to follow that through. And then by the time that they reach 18, if they, you know, they ideally they're ready for the world and I'll continue supporting them in that sense, which means I can't take on for now, lots of um, children. I mean, the building isn't even built yet, but you know, I wouldn't be able to take on lots of children in the first instance, but in my mind, there's like 10, 10 children that can be there and come in from whatever age and they just get to be there, um, looked after, you know, social workers have reached out that they're ready to help me with that. Government officials have reached out that they're ready to provide funding for whatever they might need. And for those families that the parents are still around or the mothers are still around, but the area that we're in, 
um, it's very, very low socioeconomically, there's a resource centre that will be next door as well. So through video link, they can learn different skills for free. They can just come in. This week, you're being taught how to do this. This week, you're being taught how to do that. So through internet and through having access now personally to so many people who are doing amazing things, I'm hoping that they come on um, come on board and they help to mentor and they can teach like weekly courses or monthly courses that um, these mothers can take part in. They can pick up nappies. They can pick up um, whatever they, they might need because we'll have it in abundance. They can pick those things up as well as picking up new skills as well. So that means that in my mind, in the future, because of the skills that they've learned and how they'll be, um, you know, assisted in using the internet, they can start to cultivate income for themselves that does not rely on their immediate environment. And um, then they're not really needing to give up their children or whatever. They can still be with their children and still be creating a source of income that goes beyond what they've been told that they can have um, just because they live in, um, you know, Fadei or wherever. That's really sick. And I like that last part you said about have, um, being able to create a source of income that isn't necessarily dependent on where they are or they, even their current circumstances. It's sort of like teaching entrepreneurial skills. And um, yeah, yes. I mean, I believe in entrepreneurship. I think it's a very, very, it can be very powerful. And it, te- it teaches us, you know, yeah. that, that saying, the, what is it, the give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day and teach him how to fish and he'll eat for yeah. the rest of his life. It's, it's literally that, you know, yeah. equipping people with a skill yeah. set so that they can learn to build and grow and do whatever they've got to do and live life on their own terms literally yes Um, and just being culturally sensitive because oftentimes we find now why organizations go into these places and quite sickeningly so the first thing they want to focus on is birth control birth control and people are understanding that there is a very there's a very weird preoccupation that whiteness seems to have with the with the wombs of black people or black women and it's been that been that way for centuries because we literally had to breed the um, supports, you know, the workers for the capitalist system that we know now, right? So there's still that preoccupation with it. And the moment we're talking about climate change, they go, oh, but you know, they're having so many children's and um, children in Africa, but Ch- Africa isn't the one pro- um, emitting a lot of the. Um, you know, all the pollution that you're focused on. Yeah. It's you and your companies. Focus on yourself. And so, again, it's my way of in one you you know in one sense protecting them from that we're not talking about birth control here we're not talking about all of those things here where they're trying to tell you that this is the reason that you're not succeeding the reason you're not succeeding is literally because of capitalism so what we can do is teach you skills get you get you the skills that you need whether you want to have I don't know, like an Etsy store where you're, you know, selling things that you've made or, um, you know, and being setting you up with a way of being able to ship all of those things and you're keeping all of your proceeds, you're keeping all the things that you make. And before you know it, these women are strutting around the area feeling themselves because they know that they're not beholden to anybody and they've got the skills now to do what they need to do for themselves. And actually when they feel that sense of power, in their immediate area, they'll now start saying, oh, but we want lights. We want better lights for here. And we want a better Mm. irrigation system for, you know, they'll start demanding things because they know that they can. And that's where I'm headed towards. Like, I think that it's great when people are focused on the more, um, you know, the things that I guess are higher up in the pyramid. I'm focused on, I want to get into the foundation. I want to, I want to understand that what I might be doing, I might not see in my lifetime, you know, the full effects of it, but I want to at least while I'm here, see that we've, you know, we've gotten it well underway. 
I like what you said there as well about when the women are feeling their sense, feeling themselves, feeling their power, and they now they can demand better things, better conditions. Okay, we need lights, we need this, we need that. And it sort of goes around in circle to what you're talking about, what we were talking about earlier about finding your own power. So it's sort of like, in a way, it's like you, you find, you're on a journey, I guess it's always a journey, find yourself, finding mm-hmm. yourself, and then helping yeah. other people to find themselves as well through the home in Nigeria, through your other ventures, through you being you, through the the Pole Studio, etc. You know, all of these yeah. different ventures is all about helping, it looks like just about helping women to find themselves and to find their power. Yeah, yeah, that's ultimately it for me. Like, I know how um, lonely and how dark a place it can be when you feel like you don't have that power, you forget where your power, that your power has resided with you all along, like, on this journey of life, like we've been given all of the tools that we need. We just need to know where they are. Like I did a TEDx talk where I talk about the backpack, like, and having all the tools that you need to, to, to succeed and thrive in this life, but just not knowing that you were carrying them all along. And all it takes is maybe for somebody to come along and be like, oh, that's where your flashlight is, or that's where your thing is. And just point it, pointing it out to you. And then off you go, you know, making that journey so much more easier. And because I've been finding where my tools are, I haven't found all of them, but you know, the ones I have found, I'm now able to identify them. So if I see other people and they haven't found where it is, I'm like, oh, that's where your thing is. And that's where that is. And you know, they can continue and hopefully they do that for somebody else. And ultimately it's starting with women because that's who I have direct access to. But ultimately this is a collective healing, right? And the sons that we have, the daughters we have, the children we have will now carry those um, lessons. So the next generation or the generations that follow after that, they're not having to heal from so much wounding that we are having to heal from, you know? And that's what I see a lot of the time online when people come at me mad, all I'm thinking is like, there's so much unhealed trauma here, whether you realize it or not. And by seeing me living in this way and being this way, it's triggering something within you that you don't quite know what to do with. I can't preoccupy myself with absorbing all of that for you. I've just got to keep doing what I'm doing. And like I say, it's it's the generations to come afterwards. There, That's when we'll be like, oh, you know what? We got it right. Yeah, we did what needed to be done. For sure. That's really cool. All right, so let's um, reflect back on your your life, your career. Mm-hmm. What would you say you are most proud of achieving, either personally or professionally? I'm most proud of achieving um, a self-love, you know. Um, I'm most proud of that. When you spend so long not liking yourself, it the, no matter what you do, no matter what you achieve, it will never feel great. It will just never feel great because what you are trying to use those things for is to fill a void then when you realize that the void, you know, can't really be filled with um, material things, it comes from a real understanding of self or real willingness to understand self. I don't think you just understand self and that's it. It's a willingness to be open to the journey that you are on, because we're made up of so many different parts. And it's that journey of getting to a point where everything is cohesive, and thus, you are living as your best self. I don't feel like I'm ultimately there yet, but I'm enjoying the journey of being there. And there's nothing that I would trade for that. I feel like ultimately that even makes me a better mother, a better partner because of this journey of holding space for myself so I can hold space for other people. Um, yeah, that that's the true thing. I could say, yeah, you know, it's great that my son is here. Of course, it's wonderful. It's a blessing. But 
I would be so sad if I wasn't the person I am now and I had my son because he would not have been getting the best of me. And so definitely it's the self-love that I'm working at growing. Okay. And this next question might tie in a little bit of what you've just said there, Mm -hmm. but what would you say would be one of your highest highs and one of your lowest lows so far? Um, one of my highest highs, um, Ooh, I'd say one of my highest highs, maybe I'd say it was getting a book deal. I haven't actually announced that yet. (laughs) Um, but I got my, um, got my book deal and thanks. And, um, it took a lot of, it took a lot of work. It took a lot of work to just get there to just, ah, to just get there was, it was a lot. Um, and at the time I did, I haven't celebrated it really, but I, did, I, it, I just couldn't take it in because I think it was so much for my mind to comprehend that I'd never considered myself a writer. If you ask me, who are you? What do you do? First thing is like, oh, I'm an actor, director. Like I will never lead with being a writer. But again, the way that life will show you the tools that you had with you all along, that's how, you know, life works really. And so in writing more and for uh, with other people in encouraging me to write more it took somebody saying to me you know all the tweets that you put out you put out a lot of tweets you know if you just wrote them in long form you would have a book and and people could pay you for that rather than just writing for free online Mm -hmm. and I thought hmm interesting take and I started doing it and before I knew it you know it became one of my main sources of income so yeah, being able to transform lives and to be able to change perspectives and, and oh, honestly, to be able to get to younger people from um, that age. That's one of the things I'm really, really looking forward to. So I know that that will take me to even higher highs. And one of my lowest lows will definitely be my miscarriage um, that I had in 2018, April 2018, because again, when you are expecting something and then that thing doesn't happen, that was the literal, like the literal manifestation of that, you know, there are ne- there are numerous things that we are disappointed with in life that we think are going to happen and then they don't happen. But when it's happening physically in your body, it triggers a lot of things. And this, you know, I mentioned about self-love earlier, having gone through the sexual abuse as a child, I would objectify my body for so, so many years. Um, and it's still something I'm working at unlearning where, you know, I'm very, very fast. I've always had like an athletic build. So I was very, very fast in terms of running. I was always into sports. Like um, I was an air cadet as well, captain of the football team, this, that, like I've always been active. Even when people were saying to me, oh, you look too muscular. Like nobody's going to want to go out with you when you look like a boy. But I just keep, uh, you know, kept doing it um, anyway. I was really, I'm gifted as a dancer. So many things that I did physically, but at the back of my mind, all of the time was like, I have to be this strong. I have to be this. I have to be that so that nobody will ever hurt me again. It was that ending bit that let me know that it's a trauma response, that that's the reason I wanted to do this thing as opposed to just wanting to do it because I loved it. So I was working at unlearning those things through therapy and all the reading, extensive reading that I was doing. And then the miscarriage happened. And what that did was revert me back to that narrative of like, but see, if your body was stronger, if your body was doing what it needed to do, then you wouldn't have had that. And so you start playing all of these things and and blaming and and just really attacking yourself. Um, But what was wonderful was that my therapist that I got because of that, I started hearing what was happening. And I was like, oh, nope, going to get a therapist to talk through all of that with. And I got my um, most recent therapist, um, Emma, around that time. And 
she changed my perspective on it because she's she's very very good at dealing with loss right and grief and she was like but your body did what it was meant to do so you should thank your body so even in all of the journey that you've been through so far with your body your body knew that something wasn't quite right you know something wasn't quite right and then it shut it down and said you know what we're not going to do that not that we'll never do that but we're not doing that right now because that isn't going to work and it shut it down thank your body for doing that and I thought hmm I haven't thought about it that way and then I started realizing that you have to be able to trust your body the same way like you I've given my body all of these things all of this year these years I should be able to trust my body to do what it needs to do the same way when I have a cold my body helps me recover I have to be able to trust that my body's doing what it's what you know what it's meant to do um and so that even in that low I discovered things I remember during that low I was so angry as well because I'm like god but god I've done everything that you've said I've 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 given up so many things and I've I've gone out to help people I've done all of these things why me why is this happening to me and then understanding that um what that was doing was opening me up to a different aspect of myself like can you still trust that you are held and loved by the um the divine source of creation when things don't seemingly look like they're going your way can you still trust that and what I found is that, yeah, you, you can, you can, there's, you, there are different facets to a relationship that we have with ourselves and our divine selves. Um, and we have to be willing to, to explore every aspect of that as they're presented to us. And so I came out of that much stronger, knowing my power even more that even in the face of such grief and such major disappointment that I'm, I still have an immense capacity to love that's amazing to me. So even in the lowest lows, I think that you find things right down there, deep down there that you didn't even remember were there the whole time. Okay, that's perfect. And last question before we go into quickfire questions, what do you want your legacy to be? Woo! I want my like, like my legacy to be like, um, she was the queen of Tonapari. You know, like I think that <laughs> <laughs> I just want, I want, Love that word. I want my lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly just want my legacy to be like, wow, she was a vibe. Like, write it on my headstone. Mm-hmm. Wow, she was a vibe. <laughs> and like, I just want to know that um, I left here impacting people in the most positive way, but in the most authentic way to me. I can't do like, you know, oh, like, oh, oh, oh like everything. <laughs> no, like, there's bass in my voice. I like the bass being in my voice. I like saying things as they are, but ultimately saying it because I want change for the better. Um, so that I like, I want to not be remembered for affecting change in a positive way, but in the most authentic way to me. I like God resides in us as us, you know, we don't have to, you know, pretend to be other people. Like this is who I am. I love dropping into the splits when I'm dancing um, sometimes at weddings, you know, I love, you know, listening to dance hall. I love like Afro beats. I love swearing. I really do. I feel like swearing is an art form. And I, and I, mm-hmm. at this stage of my life, I really enjoy it. Um, but ultimately what I enjoy is knowing that I've made somebody else feel better about existing. Um, so I hope that that's part of, you know, my legacy. Perfect. All right. That's great. Okay, let's move into the quick fire. Let me get them up. Okay. All right. 
great. So let's 20 seconds per question. There's 10 questions okay. and it starts off a bit easier, I think. And then the questions might get a bit more difficult, whatever, but just <laughs> whatever oh. first comes to your head. All right, cool. Okay. Let's go. First question. What's your favorite movie? Oh, City of Angels. I don't think I've seen that one. I'll check it out. Cool. All right. Yeah. Second question. What's your favorite book? Ah, uh, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Cool. All right. Third question. What song will you never get bored of? Ooh. Um, Legba, Wizkid. Oh, classic. Classic. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Fourth question. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would you pick? Suya and Gary. Perfect. I love Suya. Right. <laughs> Fifth question. How do you start your day? Start my day um, by praying to my Ori, like that we believe that's the, at the top of your head, my higher self. Cool. All right. Next question. Name three people that inspire you. Oh, I would say Lev, my son. I would say my partner. And I'd also say my best friend, Lammy. Perfect. All right. Next question. Oh, I should have thrown Sadiq in there. My brother Sadiq, he'll kill me. Obviously Sadiq. Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> so who are we taking out for Sadiq? <laughs> Oh, I would take out. Oh, oh I, do, I don't want man, to get you in trouble. That is, oh, <laughs> that is horrible. You can have four. <laughs> I'll put Lev and Sadiq together. To me, they're one person, Lev and cool. Sadiq. <laughs> cool. All right. Next question. What's the best advice you've ever received? Or oh, the best advice I've received, I think it was Maya Angelou that said, when people show you who they are, believe them the first time. I love that quote. Next one. If you were to dedicate the rest of your life to one charitable cause, what would you pick? I would dedicate my life to, I guess, helping young girls be great. Great. Last two questions. What's the kindest thing that somebody has ever done for you? Oh, the kindest thing somebody's ever done for me. Oh, Miss Parrot, Miss Parrot. I would say my 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 drama teacher, Miss Parrot, for believing in me. All right, great. And last question: What's one thing people don't know about you? Oh, one thing they do. I mean, hopefully they know. But I really um, enjoy country music. Obviously, really love Dolly Parton. But I think that she needs to readdress what she was talking about in Jolene. <laughs> cool, <laughs> cool. All right. <laughs> All right, that's that. Cool. That's everything. That's, that's yes. all a thousand voices done. That's quick fire questions done. Everything. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, before you round up, any got any closing remarks? Um, no, I just think it's wonderful what you're doing. Thousand voices. Um, there's so many black British voices that have been lost in time. And I definitely believe that we should be archiving our own histories because so many, so much of it was destroyed, um, um, as a result of colonization and the ending of the transatlantic slave trade. So it's important that we record our voices, not just, um, our words that exist without our voices, but literally our voices talking about the things that matter. So I think it's brilliant that you're doing this. Oh, perfect. Thanks a lot. That's really much appreciated. Uh, where can people find you if they want to find you? I'm Kolechnikov on all socials, really. Kolechnikov, um, K-E-L-E-C-H-N-E-K-O-F-F. -E -E and um, there's Kolechnikov Studio for the Pole Dance Studio and Say Your Mind Pod for the podcast as well. And I'm just about generally. Great podcast as well. I love listening to it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right, cool. So... That's that then. That's a thousand voices. Thank you once again, Collective, for coming on. Very, very much appreciated.
that was Kalechi Okafor and we're out. Okay, that was Kalechi Okafor. Thank you for tuning in. It's always very, very much appreciated. And it's always great to hear back from people as well. Like, what did you think about the episode? What were your key takeaways? And what do you think about the 1000 Voices concept in general? Please do leave a comment or a review or whichever platform you're listening to this on and let us know what you thought. As always, the new podcast episode will be out next week, Tuesday on all major podcasting platforms and the full YouTube video will follow on later on in the week. So subscribe to us on all platforms so that you don't miss that when that comes out. Also, if you'd like to see who we're going to be interviewing next, follow us on our social media pages at A Thousand Voices UK and we'll be promoting upcoming interview there and posting some clips on those on our pages. So that was that. Thank you for tuning in once again. It is very much appreciated. And until next week, people. We're out.